listening to the Stories of Transformation podcast. I'm your host, Bakhtasha Hadi. In each episode, we will talk with some of the most inspiring and courageous individuals who share their unique stories about how they overcame hardships, learned their craft, and found their purpose. These conversations are meant to inform, entertain, and inspire. Okay, happy listening. In this episode of Stories of Transformation, I'll be speaking with Alex Dagon, who is the author of The Snow Leopard Project. The Snow Leopard Project is a remarkable story of the heroic effort to save and preserve the wildlife of Afghanistan. Alex is also the CEO and co-founder of Conservation X Labs, which is an innovation and technology startup with the mission to end human-induced extinction. This will be the main focus of our conversation today, and some of the key topics we discuss are why Alex wrote The Snow Leopard Project, what makes Afghanistan surprisingly biologically diverse, what are the implications of animals going extinct? Alex shares what his experience was like working on wildlife conservation in an active war zone. We get into why we believe humans feel the need and in fact are willing to break the law to hunt animals to extinction. Alex explains what he thinks is the most important thing to influencing people in order to change their behavior in regards to conservation. Lastly, we discuss how Conservation X Labs aims to go about solving global warming, extinction, and famine differently from other organizations and startups. I really enjoyed this fascinating conversation and I hope you do too. So without further ado, it's my pleasure to bring you Alex Dagon. Alex, how are you today, sir? I'm doing great. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Alex, we're here to uh, essentially talk about uh, your book, The Snow Leopard Project, and other adventures in war zone conservation. I'd like to kind of start this off by asking a simple yet important question. Why did you decide to write this book, sir? I wanted people fundamentally to have a different picture of Afghanistan. And, you know, the pictures that we see in the media of the country, um, even the picture that was selected for the cover of the book, sort of represent the this idea of barrenness, that, that there is no life there, that there is only conflict and war. And, in fact, Afghanistan biologically, culturally, in terms of all the different elements, um, is spectacular. Um, it is a country that includes the western end of the Himalaya. It includes these, you know, incredible oak and cedar forests. Uh, it includes these beautiful red deserts in the south, these Grand Canyon-like landscapes and high plateaus, pistachio woodlands that we have. And you never see that. You never see that in the media. It is a biological... Silk Road as much as it is a cultural Silk Road. And I wanted people to see that. And I wanted people to see how beautiful not only the country was, but how beautiful the people that I met there were. That's amazing. I appreciate that perspective. Often when people think about Afghanistan, they think about the people and they don't often think about the diversity in terms of the landscape, right? So there's often a misconception that Afghanistan is full of deserts, but they often forget about the mountains, right? And how land masses literally come together in a place like Afghanistan, right? The Hindu Kush, the Palmyra Mountains, uh, the Karakoram Mountains are relatively close. That whole region is really, really, really curious as it pertains to uh, not only peoples coming together, but land masses, and then as a result, animal species, right? And that way it's really biodiverse. It is, uh, you know, that area is called the Pamir Knot. It is this massive collision of all those mountains, the Hindu Kush, Tian Tian, the Karakoram Mountains, the Pamir Mountains all coming together, right? They refer to it as the roof of the world. All of that geological collisions and, and topography uh, creates habitat. And it, yeah. and it also lies at this intersection between the flora and fauna of, of Eurasia, between the flora and fauna of another major, what's called an eco-region mm-hmm. called Indo-Malaysia, mm-hmm. um, and the flora and fauna of Africa. So you have hyenas, right? You have snow leopards, you have brown bears, the, you know, essentially grizzly relatives that are all within a single country. And what's curious is I read in your book that there was more diversity and variation of cats in Afghanistan than Africa. Is that correct? So more cat species, at least at one point, than sub-Saharan Africa, because up until 1960s, we had tigers in Afghanistan. Uh, There's a good chance that there are lions in the deep southern part of the country, because there are lions in Iran and Pakistan. So I imagine that that their their habitat stretched across that bottom portion. Uh, I still believe that there are cheetahs in Afghanistan in terms of the Asiatic cheetahs, and then, of course, snow leopards, Persian leopards, caracal, 
Lynx, Sand Cats, Palace Cats, um, Wild Cats. There's a lot there. Uh, yeah. And it's it, it's incredible. So let's talk about uh, the snow leopard because I find this to be uh, not only a majestic animal, but uh, also just fascinating in terms of its reclusiveness, its difficulty to essentially capture on film. The, the reason why, uh, I mean, the first time that the snow leopard was brought to my attention was, I think, just by algorithmic chance, whereby, you know, YouTube essentially showed me this video of a snow leopard in the midst of Afghanistan, chasing down what I, as a simple non-scientist, non-conservationist, would uh, describe as a, as a mountain goat, chasing down the mountain. And the way in which it, it hunts this goat is riveting. It's actually riveting. And eventually uh, the mountain goat gets away. But that attack really just made me uh, think to myself, what are these creatures all about? So do you know the clip that I'm talking yes. about? Yes. So help me understand what exactly is going on there. What is the mount, What is the snow leopard doing? What is it chasing? How, like what gives it its special ability to kind of be able to attack at that severe decline on a mountain? Yeah, it's pretty much almost running down a straight cliff, right? Yeah. And this is from Planet Earth One. It's the episode on mountains. Uh, and I can't remember how many months it took them to just get that one clip, but they got it. And, you know, they were waiting and waiting and waiting uh, for these moments. Um, but a Persian leopard in comparison to a snow leopard, uh, which looks more like the leopards you might find in Africa, right? Its tail is only a third of its body length. While for the snow leopard, the length of the snow leopard tail, which is much bigger and thicker, is actually the the equal to the length of its body. And the reason for that is it gives it, it works as a lever, that allows it to balance itself as it's running across these incredibly steep habitats. And then you have these tremendous paws that essentially act as snowshoes for this animal, but also give it the ability to sort of run down those mountainsides. Uh, and then the animal it's chasing is this thing called a markhor. Okay. Which, um, help us it, understand in Farsi what that means. So that, that, you know, my translation of that is snake eater, although there's never any evidence that it actually ate snakes, which, but it's like a twin horn unicorn, uh, that is, uh, incredibly beautiful, um, and majestic. And in fact, a hunter just paid $130,000 in Pakistan for the right to shoot one of these. And that happened about a year ago. But this is a spectacular animal that is being, you know, chased down this, this steep mountainside. The animal literally gets away by, by jumping into a river, right. uh, and swimming away. Right. Uh, and it's just, you know, this is a landscape that is hard, right? And it's hard for the people who live in it. It's hard for, the snow leopards who live in it. And one of our, one, the work we were doing was, you know, fundamentally in Afghanistan at the, at the largest level was what was the effect of three decades of war mm -hmm. on the wildlife in Afghanistan that we knew this area was actually biologically really important because of serving as this biological crossroads. What happened after three decades of war? Would we find any snow leopards or Asiatic black bear or other animals uh, left in the country, what had happened to these habitats um, that were there. And so being able to find the snow leopard, assess what happened to these landscapes, could they support the prey right. that the snow leopard ate? Could we do things that would prevent things like retaliatory killing? Because if the prey base goes down, it's going to go after the domestic livestock. And that is, for some people, literally their wealth. Uh, so what could we do to mitigate that risk? Uh, and one of the one of the real surprise findings that we had was that there was this incredible trade in furs that was driven by the humanitarian community, which was outlined in your book. So tell yeah. us how that process worked. What does that look like? What does that mean? What were the implications of all that? The first thing is we found snow leopards were there, and not only were they there, but our, the num they were there in much bigger numbers than we had actually imagined. What numbers are we talking about? Uh, we had originally imagined 70 snow leopards in the country as the population size. Uh, we found in one region that we had estimated there's probably over 200. So across Afghanistan, uh, greater numbers than that. Now, help us understand just in terms of total numbers. Uh in your book, I believe it's mentioned that something like 80% of all the snow leopards that exist, exist in Afghanistan. Is that correct? 
No, that's, no, they exist across the Himalayas. So they're in Nepal and Bhutan and in China, in Pakistan, in India, and in Afghanistan. But the numbers are small enough that that any population is important. And actually, if there are threats to one population, having multiple populations across the region is critical. But this is, you know, a, a not insignificant part of a population to look at. And if you are losing a few hundred snow leopards, you are losing a potential threat. You know, moving an extinction rate from 1% to 2% for some species can actually be detrimental. And the other thing is you have you have genetic variation across those populations that you're okay. trying to... You don't want a single population that maintains the only gene pool for that population. You actually want to see genetic variation that allows them to have greater resistance to things like diseases. This is like for the Iranian cheetah. That was the other example. We're down at a number where we think that they're somewhere in the 30s of this subspecies of cheetah distinct from the cheetah in Africa uh, is the entire population. And they're at a point where they're so low that a single car accident can actually be a source of extinction, uh, a driver of extinction. It can take out enough of the genes to reduce the size of the gene pool and the genetic diversity of that gene pool mm -hmm. in terms of what we're doing. Mm -hmm. They are so low in number that they have a hard time just finding mates, right? And this is also magnified by not having enough sort of prey. Part of what we were trying to do is we had ample evidence that there was populations in uh, Afghanistan. And in fact, we had gone to lunch at a local restaurant right next to our office. Mm -hmm. uh, there were two triggers for our work in wildlife trade. One was going to lunch and seeing Iranian cheetah skin on the wall uh, and realizing and being told that this was a recent cheetah hunt, uh, which suggested that there still could be cheetahs in Afghanistan. And in fact, there is another researcher totally independent of us from the UK, British Afghan citizen who was doing his PhD in the UK who had found in Mazar Sharif a separate cheetah skin uh, literally during that time period. Now, that gave us hope that that was there, but we had two other things that were going on. One is Chicken Street, which is a really famous street in Kabul, was actually selling a lot of these skins of a lot of the species that we're trying to protect. I saw photos of that in your book. Now, help me help me understand because uh, my family home is not far from Chicken Street in Kabul, and so I've been there a number of times while I was living in Afghanistan. And so, help me understand what the sentiment of Afghans was toward animal skins. Let's talk about this just in kind of general terms because it's going to help give the context in which in the environment which you're working. In the context of Afghanistan, was this even on people's radar in terms of extinction, snow leopards, cheetahs? Did they see value in the sense of trying to preserve what's there? Was this a conversation that was, that was relatively easy to understand? And then also, uh, when people would see, for example, stuffed cheetahs as somebody, a buyer's walking down the street with one in their arms as depicted in your, in your book, there's a photograph, an interesting photograph of that. Uh, what was the sentiment of the people watching? Did they think it was curious? Were they excited? Were they kind of baffled? Did they know that cheetahs and or uh, snow leopards exist in the context of Afghanistan? What was the sentiment of the people in that space? I mean, people knew that the animals were there, but I don't think they... Un Two things that was kind of interesting, if I could take a step back. Sure. Like, one of the questions that we get asked is, how can you take the time to actually work on wildlife conservation? In an active war zone. In an active war zone, which has you know, 30 years of conflict, don't they have more pressing things to be worried about, right? And it's a totally fair question. But we had this thing that was kind of extraordinary that we never had problems with corruption. We never had problems with the bureaucracy. We had an enormous amount of support from at the local levels, at the provincial levels, at the national levels, members of the parliament, members of the, you know, Ministry of Agriculture, of the National Environmental Protection Agency, uh, were all enthusiastic. And I think in part was we, when we would speak and lecture on the animals, we would talk about the uniqueness of the biodiversity in Afghanistan mm -hmm. and the value and what we were doing in my mind, or at least the sense I got was actually protecting Afghan identity, which for people, again, who were refugees, you know, in Iran, in UAE, in Pakistan, 
was actually really well received. That's really curious. So let's unpack that thought. You felt like, was it explicitly said that you were protecting the sense of Afghan identity or was it something that you felt like was deeper except you only found that by the questions that you asked, by the work that you did, by the compliments that you got, by the support that you had? Was it something that you kind of felt was deeper? I I definitely think it was deeper. I don't think it was mm. as explicit, but we saw, you know, Panjshir Valley, right? Like the names that you see, we going into the walk-on, the decorations of the houses, both outside and inside, are of the wildlife. Finding petroglyphs that are literally littered in this part of the the Afghan Himalaya, you know, that are 2,000 years old, that are drawings of ibex, that are drawings of Marco Polo sheep, that are drawings of, of animals. Seeing these themes across the landscape, it was easy for us to then speak of these animals as part of what Afghanistan was. And we did other things. We actually worked with mullahs in Nuristan in that region because there are provisions in the Quran that speak about environmental protection, uh, you know, and people appreciated that. But I think that concept of like, we were here to protect what it means to be Afghan and this wildlife is part of that, right? You see it in the rugs that are made by people in Nuristan. You see it in the designs, uh, you know, on how people use Ibex and Marco Polo sheep uh, horns across the walk on. You see it across what they're doing. You know, how people reacted to a stuffed leopard, I think it was more curiosity mm. rather than desire. But the problem that we found was that outsiders who ostensibly were in Afghanistan to help build the country, to. to, to we're, to, cr- we're creating demand for the selling of Creating these. enormous demand. And in fact, we had found documents. A lot of our work was actually getting the baseline from pre-1979 of wildlife. Uh, so we... You mean in terms of documentation, what exists there? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, so all the science. So we actually did a huge amount of work of going to natural history museums, getting data on their collections. Previous, uh, you know, there's a field museum of natural history in Chicago did something called the Street Expedition, one of the largest documents. Uh, there was a Danish expedition in Afghanistan. All these things provided those records. We actually digitized all of them and distributed them across all the organizations working in Afghanistan because we felt everyone should have that information. Um, but one of the things we also came across was the fact that FAO found in the 1970s that all the hippie trail that was moving through Afghanistan, that people were buying huge numbers of furs then. So this wasn't a new phenomenon that people were selling these things. This was something that was driven by the demand to meet demand generated by these Westerners going through. And we saw this in Afghanistan. We saw this on Chicken Street. We saw this on the U.S. military bases. We saw this in the embassies, and we said, this is a problem. And then I had this other episode, uh, which was on the plane, uh-huh. you know, and when you fly, at least at the time when you flew into Afghanistan, it wasn't an easy process getting you had to go in, right? You Dubai, you, you had to change flights, you had to go to Safi Air, right, Ariana yeah, Air, or, right, Terminal com, 2. Com Air. Terminal 2 at that time. Right was like the the godforsaken, forgotten corner of Dubai Airport. Nothing ritzy about it, right? And and it had, I thought, one of the best bookstores I'd ever been in because it was books tailored to people going to Somalia, Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq. Like it was all these great stories that I've never seen in any other bookstores. That somehow ended up in the bookstore in Terminal Two, but there was. Other than that, nothing redeeming about that terminal. It was hard to get to. It was a difficult place. And so I had bought a gaming device, which was a PlayStation Portable, yeah. to just pass time as you as there were plane delays, as you were just waiting uh, in the process. And when I was on the plane using this device during one of my trips in, because uh, I would go, I would go to scientific conferences to present on what we were finding, uh, the flight steward said, ah, I have the same one. And did you know you could put videos on this thing? Mm -hmm. And he pulls out his device and he shows me this video. And it's a video of some people from the Gulf, uh, probably from the Emirates, who were singing and happy. And they were on the same plane. They had rented an entire 737 
to go on a hunting expedition to Kandahar, which is not the safest place that I would go on vacation. And then the flight steward walks through the plane and you see row after row of these sacred falcons that are birds that can cost between $10,000, you know, to hundreds of thousands of dollars per bird. There's probably over 30 something birds on that plane. Uh, and that's what the plane was carrying. They were going hunting for another animal called the Hubara bustard. And, you know, they set up camp for weeks. Yeah. And then they are paying off someone to maintain their security while they're there. But they are killing thousands of these hubara bustards, which are these beautiful, large, incredible birds that you find in Afghanistan and Pakistan for sport and falconry, which is a UNESCO-protected heritage. But in this case, it was having an impact. So we were seeing external demands on Afghan wildlife was a problem that we needed, whether it was from the Westerners or it was from people within the Gulf, that this was a problem. The Afghans themselves were not Interested in that. It wasn't a significant driver, right? But like the main risk among the Afghans were a snow leopard was going to eat my sheep, right? right? And this is what I need to get through the winter, right? Which is a very different matter than, you know, I'm looking for a hundred lynx comforters that would literally wipe out the entire population of lynx in Afghanistan. So let's ask a question because you've thought about this problem for a while, Alex. What exactly is it about the need to essentially hunt and or capture these exotic animals that drives people to a place that is not theirs necessarily, right? Because I've heard similar stories of people from the greater um, Persian Gulf flying into Eastern Africa, right? I had the privilege of um, having the opportunity to climb Mount Kilimanjaro in 2015, which is a wonderful experience. For those that haven't uh, climbed Mount Kilimanjaro, do so before uh, the glacier on top of the mountain essentially melts. Um, but nonetheless, after climbing that mountain, I spent some time with some locals and they told me that, uh, the local airfield had direct flights into Dubai and out of Dubai where people could come and hunt because the Serengeti is close. So they would go and hunt exotic animals, right? The top five, top five animals in the safari. They would fly in, do their hunting and then fly out. And so this isn't uh, this isn't specific to a place like Afghanistan. This happens in the region, other places where there are exotic animals. So what is it about human beings in your mind that causes them to want to do this? I mean, you think about this problem in terms of solving extinction of these animal species. And a lot of it, one of the main drivers is this human need to be able to essentially say, this is mine, this is what I've captured, this is the fun in which I've implemented and or taken out of this the, a place like Afghanistan or Tanzania, you name that place. What is that all about? So it is a great question. And one of the problems of conservation in general is that we tend to actually discount or actually work against human behavior rather than seek ways to harness it as exactly. a tool within what we're doing. And this question is one that we're seeing not just in hunting, um, but we're also seeing it in things like Chinese medicine, traditional Chinese medicine, where people are now seeking all types of wildlife that actually never were used in traditional Chinese medicine. And increasingly, it is ostentatiousness, it is wealth, not health. That, that they is, seek. That, that That is driving the trade, right? It isn't to say that there aren't, there are medicinal processes, but in fact, there are substitutes that work just as well. But they don't do well in the market. They don't do well. And this is one of the things, you know, we've been looking at is, can you create synthetic pangolin? You know, we worked with a company that, uh, and supported a company that had worked with synthetic rhino horn, you know, but the, the real question is, why hasn't Viagra worked if, <laughs> if, if that is the use? Part of it was, in fact, when you really look at it, rhino horn is in part used for a carving market that people are going for. Um, but it isn't a health driven thing. But the other part of it is actually that um, it is really wealth and ostentatiousness and the ability to have these objects, to possess these objects that are unique and rare. And in fact, you know, we in conservation discount the fact that even declaring something rare may have the inadvertent effect of driving up demand for it. So the very listing of something on an endangered species list will have this perverse impact of driving people to do these activities. There's a great 
researcher in University of Paris, Sud, a guy named Frank Courchamp, who did this amazing set of experiments where he had the words common species this way, rare species. And then he would make the general public, I don't know how we would do this in the U.S., uh, we have committees you would have to pass this through. I think it would be really hard to get it through. But he would have the rare species, and then he'd set up sprinklers so you would get doused if you go on the way to – it didn't say what the name of the species was. It just said rare species. And then you have another pathway that just said common species with no sprinklers and just counted number of people willing to get soaked, right? Same thing. Rare species, you had to climb up five flights of stairs. You get to the top, door is locked. Common species, first floor hall, just counting the number of people willing to make that effort. But my favorite one was wow. he took a bowl of seeds and he had set it just out of reach in some kind of very public gorilla exhibit or some other exhibit. And then he had the words common species and then he had the word rare species and he would watch and count how many seeds were left, mm -hmm. right? Would people actually take the seeds? To take the seeds, you'd have to climb over a barrier and actually steal the seeds in front of the other people there. So when he put common species, no one took any seeds. When he put rare species, there's a significant number of seeds that were gone. People literally were willing to break the law in front of other people because it just had the word rare species. It didn't indicate what species it was. It had no identifying information other than that. I think that is part of the problem. And I think part of the problem with conservation is we tend to think of restoring these idyllic places. We're not thinking of humans as part of that landscape. That's exactly what I'm getting to. So for in the line of work that I'm interested in is I always try to ask, why do people do what they do? I'm really interested in human behavior. And this idea of trying to understand what is it about humans that wants these things to capture, kill, and then, and then actually demonstrate to the world that they've captured and killed it. I would boil it down to this idea of feeling special, this idea of I'm worthy of this thing. In fact, I'm worthy enough to achieve it, acquire it, and then show it. I mean, this can be applied to many things, right? So think about this in the idea of tourism. Yeah. Human beings, we are so curious and we lead by trial and error that we are willing to essentially put our lives at risk to be the first at something, to find the thing that nobody else has discovered. I mean, for some people, it is unfathomable to think that they're going to put themselves on a jet to go to Mars with the <laughs> strong possibility of not coming back. This idea of feeling special, perseverance, is what made us as human beings at the top of the food chain, but also too, it's to the detriment of everything else underneath us in the food yeah. chain, right? Yeah. That's what's deeply curious about who we are as people, as humans. Yeah, and I think it's tied to identity. And, mm -hmm. and you know, one of the trends I think we, ha we have seen is things like the European Union and globalization that have led to kind of uniformity of identity and of erosion of the individual identities of the places underneath have also sort of inspired breakaway movements of whether, you know, whether you are Basque or whether you're British or whether you are, you know, uh, from Wales or, or from Scotland, that you are seizing onto those things that make you unique. I think th there's a lot to be said about that. Yeah. Um, you run Conservation X Labs. I wonder if it's possible in any way to kind of bring cognitive scientists, anthropologists, these people that study humans and the values in which humans uphold into your work, right? So a lot of the work that you're, you've probably done, a lot of the science that you've done has been on lemurs and actual like cheetahs and snow leopards. But I wonder how much of your work can incorporate this idea of what it means to be humans, because ultimately we are the reason why these animals are going away, right? Like we are the major part of the other uh, the second part of that equation. Well, I think ultimately extinction is not only about their extinction, but by, about our own, right? So if we're at least self-concerned, you know, we should be concerned about the loss of our pollinators and the loss of our insects and the loss of the very things that keep our planet alive and going. Uh, the one thing we've learned, though, in conservation is merely telling people about the problem is the least effective way to actually engineer change. And in fact, things like the emaciated polar bear on the ice flow may actually dissuade people from wanting to solve the problem. So Conservation Next Labs is set up, it's an innovation and technology company 
a nonprofit that spins out for profits that are looking at technologies that can address the underlying drivers of extinction. That's our mission is to end human induced extinction. And we do so in two ways, right? We build tools that can address these drivers. Those drivers may be in all these other aspects of the SDGs. It could be food waste or artisanal mining or air conditioning, which we could talk about and reinventing air conditioning. But the other aspect of it is we use a community uh, we're trying to reinvent who's a conservationist, and mm-hmm. it cannot just be biologists, right? right? My job as a biologist is literally, uh, and I'm an extinction biologist, is to document and lament the passing of species. And I write their epitaphs that we call scientific papers. We are literally the most depressing people on earth that you can have at your dinner party, which is probably why no one invites me to dinner anymore. Cause I can tell you every fact about extinction. And literally, <laughs> even when I was doing my research, which was on why do certain species go extinct and others survive, spent three years living in a tent in Madagascar. Yeah, Someone set fire to the tree right next to my tent. And I was like, just leave me one, right, as we were trying to understand these extinction uh, processes. So it can be really depressing, right, in terms of what you're doing. And that problem of just the giant collective sigh that we take as conservationists is it actually turns off people from wanting to solve the problem. They would rather, you know, hear about the royals or something else in, in terms of their media. But this is just getting back at your question is – what it will actually – conservationists may understand the problem. They don't own the solution. What it will take to solve this problem is actually diversifying the community of people who are yeah. conservationists yeah. that allow us to bring in behavioral economists and anthropologists right. and sociologists and engineers and uh, you know synthetic biologists and computer scientists that work alongside of us to help us understand the problem, to help us – come up with solutions that people want that will replace the underlying drivers of extinction, that engineer resilience on these communities, that help us enforce the tools that give us leverage that we otherwise wouldn't have. That's fantastic. Now, how do you essentially, what's the story that you tell us, tell yourself, how is the pitch going to work for you as population increase? I mean, we're going to have something like 9 billion people by 2050. Uh, More and more people are coming to the earth, which means more and more demand on food, space, luxuries, right? Like all of China and all of India want to get out of poverty. What does that mean for climate change? What does that mean for animals? What does that mean for extinction of these animals? How do you think about these problems? I think about them all the time. Uh, That is literally what we do. And so um, I'll give a couple of examples. So Mm -hmm. if you look at climate change and you look at the rank of solutions that are most effective at reducing CO2 in the atmosphere, Mm -hmm. potentially projecting out in the way that you're thinking about. Where is there going to be huge amounts of population growth on this planet? It's going to be in the global south. It's going to be in India and China and Uganda and and places like that. Um, And where are those places getting hotter, right, Uh, are changing fundamentally? Where are they getting richer, right, where they want meat and dairy and air conditioning and vehicles within it? And if we look at those solutions, the most effective thing we can do for climate change other than literally move our entire species off to Mars, right? Which could be one, or have everyone declare themselves to stop reproducing or declaring them all to be vegan, is actually uh, changing air conditioning technology. And Explain so, that. What does so, that mean? So that means literally the room AC or the split units you would have in your house yep. is the best air conditioners that you can buy in the market today are only 10% as efficient as the technology allows it to be. So we were running a competition with the Indian government, the Rocky Mountain Institute, for a 500% increase in efficiency. Okay. Because the effect of that is it has the ability to reduce global warming by a half a degree by 2050, which doesn't sound like much, but it's it roughly correlates to about 500,000 species saved from extinction. So that for us is actually pretty good. But the reason that works is countries build their grid for their hottest day. So you actually need to build the capacity of your grid and power generation for the day that is the warmest day that you actually have, that everyone's flipping on their air conditioning. 
So you have a more efficient unit. You don't need to double the size of your grid, which India will have to do to just meet the number of people moving into middle class in one of the places that is getting hottest around the world. Second is consumers, right, they need to be incentivized as well. So if you're building something that's five times as efficient, it means it's costing you five times less in terms of those electricity costs. So if you can maintain the price point of what you're selling it at, you can actually reduce the amount that they pay per month in terms of their costs and maintain the efficiency of that unit. You have two strong incentives, the government and the consumers to drive it. That's interesting. Now, help me understand. So in terms of you're essentially trying to create behavior changes that pertains to your work, ultimately, that's what you're doing, either on a micro scale or a macro scale, right? So in this case, it's actually the technology. We're changing the technology. The, we're using the technology. We're not asking for behavior change. We're actually changing the devices that they have available to them. You know, we can't ask the developing world to not grow. To not use the cheapest thing on the market, to not use plastic, right? You can't because they all want to get out of poverty. So we need to actually think about how do we replace the pathways to industrialization Great. with more sustainable alternatives that meet the price points and the efficiencies and the things that they're asking for. Wonderful. So vapor compression is the underlying technology and air conditioning. We, there's actually new technologies that work even better that don't involve chemicals that, that are 20,000 times as powerful as CO2. That's a good thing. Like we can do it. People argue that we should give consumers a choice. My view is let's eliminate and change the choices on the market that people have with things that are as efficient that you know we don't want hmm. we don't want plant-based burgers that taste like cardboard. That just doesn't work. But if you could make a plant-based burger that tastes exactly like a burger for the same price point, you know, maybe slightly better health. In this case we we haven't gotten to that yet, then you have an alternative. And that's actually one of the products we help build through one of our prizes and challenges, which is one of the tools we use, was a shrimp that is looks like shrimp, tastes like shrimp, yeah. unbelievably delicious. Yeah. Uh, it's made out of red algae. It doesn't involve slavery. It doesn't involve 20 pounds of fish being thrown away for every pound of shrimp that you catch. Yeah. It doesn't involve the pollution and mangrove deforestation that farm shrimp costs. Uh, it costs roughly the same as regular shrimp that you can get on the market. This is a good product that we should put on there because it draw, it's going to drive the change that what's, we're looking at. What's the name of the product? It's called The company is called New Wave Foods. New Wave Foods. And they just got a major investment from Tyson's. But the thing that was driving their growth was university students because universities who are competing for people to go to their school are competing on things like food and vegan offerings. And that actually was driving so they were selling tens of thousands of pounds to universities before they got this investment from Tyson's. Oh my gosh, that's such an interesting concept of uh, selling the idea of foods and luxury to potential college students as a means to get them to come to their school versus, again, the education that's going to be provided in those schools. Yeah. How curious, how curious. So I think this is a really interesting segue to kind of go into your background in terms of uh, a transformational kind of aspect of your life. Alex, you weren't always an evolutionary biologist. You started your career as a lawyer in, in studying and were uh, working in Moscow. Is that correct? Yeah. Help, I, help us understand how this all happened. Well, I've got this, you know, schizophrenic element to which is I've always been interested in understanding why the abundance and distribution of animals across a landscape and the role that behavior and evolution plays in making that abundance and distribution. Okay. But if you think about it, we have the same processes that happen with human behavior in human societies. We have the abundance and distribution of humans and how we organize ourselves by populations, by countries, by, by regions that are based in part by economics, that mm -hmm. are based in part by history. Those things provide constraints just like evolution and resources can provide constraints on those distributions. And, and so I've always been interested in both those things. And in fact, they're different sides of the same coin that I think I've always been passionate about. about. Yeah. Great. So undergrad, I was a zoology, political science major. Uh, but then, you know, having Persian parents, you were obligated to go to medical school. I actually have 18 aunts and uncles that are physicians and engineers. My parents were both physicians. Uh, and my father was a medical school professor. Uh, I literally did interspecies heart transplants, but really had the passion much greater for this larger question of ecology and evolution and political science, particularly at the international level 
and the history and distribution of countries and why they act the way they do. But yes, I, but I was in Moscow. You were in Moscow as a lawyer. So what was the moment? So this is always really curious. <laughs> like what was the moment in your mind where you realized what I'm doing is not genuine and authentic to who I am and the contribution I want to make to the world and the things that I want to be thinking about. Was there a specific like moment in which you came to that realization? Yeah, I think it's happened multiple times. Um, but I don't think it was a realization that what I was doing was somehow insufficient. It wasn't a criticism of what I was doing. It was more of an idea or driven by the curiosity of things that lay ahead. And I think for me, law was very interesting to me because it, it is the fabric of our social contract that binds together societies and having insights into that and when it is respected and not respected in terms of the rule of law was fundamental to me understanding these human societies. But it also gave me the tools that allowed me to protect the wildlife and places, landscapes that I loved. Right. So I never disliked it. I didn't really love the people in law school that I was probably in with um, compared to the people in science because there was a much greater curiosity, the ability to continually ask questions and be able to answer those questions is a very powerful attractor to what I was trying to do. And being in the field, uh, you know, I spent two and a half years in Madagascar and another half year in the tropics of Central America being trained as a tropical biologist and doing hardcore tropical biology research. The most beautiful thing was walking through a forest and coming up with an endless series of questions that you could potentially answer of why were things the way they are. It allowed you to regress to almost being a child when you got to ask why, because that's what science is. And I literally have a four-year-old he knows that his mom and dad are scientists and I was explaining to him, you know, what science was. And I was like, science was this, this ability to say, why does the pencil fall to the ground? Why is the sky blue? Why does water act the way that it does? It is a, you know, and getting him really excited about those questions, uh, in terms of what we we're trying to do. Now I have to ask is like a, as a comic kind of relief sort of question to this, but now has that kind of turned on you in terms of your, your son always being like, Dad, why are we going to the store? Dad, why do I have to come? Dad, why do I have to go to bed right now? Uh, it may turn on you. It only turns on me in that he he wants to go to the both the Air and Space Museum and the Natural History Museum probably every weekend. Oh. Uh, he's been 15 times already, and he's four years old. So it's, hey, You're lucky. I think we are lucky to be uh, in Washington, D.C., yes. where that is a resource. Yeah. Uh, I think the question why is often, not only I think the most important question, but I think oftentimes when we ask why question, we get what responses. The reason why I share this is because I'm in this space right now where I'm trying to find a process in which I can ask better and more precise questions that actually get to the root of a problem or an issue or, again, the reasons in which human beings in the context of my world do what they do. I often tell people human beings aren't rational creatures. We are rationalizing creatures. And so I often think to myself, what was it that got a person from where they were to where they are now? What were the... Yeah processes that were going on in their minds in the context of the environment that they were living, right? And so I think what's interesting about your work is you essentially bring these two worlds together in terms of how, through the context of your study of political science and law, how and why human beings act in accordance with each other, especially when they're in tight quarters. I mean, that's the reason why law started. There wasn't, there isn't law amongst egalitarian, egalitarian societies that are nomads that are going from point A to point B. It's just things are just understood. Human law, I mean, the canon of law has been established because people have to live with each other. They have to share, right? It's the, uh, it's the conflict of the commons. It's like now that Alex and I are sharing, sitting in the same room and there's only a certain amount of coffee, how do we <laughs> share this coffee? <laughs> so that's one world in which you're living in. But then this idea of how do humans operate? How do they live in accordance with the values that they uphold? in this greater world that we're living in where there's other humans, other, other creatures, uh, other landscapes. This is all super curious. And so in many ways, your worlds have just been brought together and you're a culmination of these two interests that you've had. That is a hope. And in particular, if I can have those two things come together in places that are in the middle of fundamental change, like Russia was mm -hmm. in 92 and 93 when mm -hmm. I was there as a 22-year-old, uh, like 
Madagascar, which was a place of biological change and transformation and demographic change, like Iraq was, like Afghanistan was, the one thing I realized was, you know, hearkening back to the butterfly effect, that a small amount of influence, a small amount of effort could actually have massive transformational capacity to do good, right? And when I realized when I was somewhere around 11 years old, the animals went extinct because of humans, that we had something like the passenger pigeon, which was a bird so numerous that it would cloud the skies for hours to days. Literally an animal that was in the billions that we hunted to zero, right? The last one is in the Natural History Museum in Washington, D.C. Its name is Martha. I think it was at the Cincinnati Zoo, uh, and it was the last of its kind, and it had all kinds of problems. It wasn't a healthy last member of its species. It is like the opposite of the animals two by two going onto the ark, right? This is them getting off and the exit is extinction. How could we do that, right? How could we actually wipe out the thylacine, the Tasmanian tiger, a marsupial tiger that was across Papua New Guinea, Australia, and Tasmania? How could we lose all these species, that's what had driven me. Even my work on law had been on environmental law and international law to drive. Even the trade law work I did was on cases that involved environmental law Mm -hmm. uh, and in trade and endangered species. Mm -hmm. All these things sort of gave me the tools, but the science was the thing that sort of motivated me the most, but I still came back to politics. The other decision was I started working on wildlife and landscapes, wildlands, wildlife in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. And I did a calculation that said, you know, the United States is actually relatively well protected despite all the threats we have. Uh, We are so much better off, but there's these places in the world like the Peruvian Amazon, Mm -hmm. you know, where Paddington Bear is from, right? He was from darkest Peru, like Madagascar, like Papua New Guinea, like, like Borneo, um, like New Caledonia like the Philippines that are so rich in species and so threatened Mm -hmm. that how was I going to spend my life? And I literally said, how do I protect the most species per unit minute in terms of what I was doing? Interesting. And, and that led me to say, I can't work in the U S I need to work on these international places. It's been interrupted by interesting pathways and segues as I go on this journey, one of which was, you know, three years of work in Madagascar, you know, within two days of coming back after living in a tent for two and a half years, uh, there 9-11 happened. And I said, well, I can't be an academic anymore. And I signed up with the State Department and three months later was deployed to Iraq. Iraq, yeah. Uh, But it taught me a lot about places in the midst of change. It taught me a lot about geopolitics. Uh, It led me to my job as chief scientist at USAID, which allowed me to understand protecting a national park is not enough if you aren't thinking about the pressures on that national park, which may be things, as you suggested, which may be food security, which may be artisanal mining, which may be a whole host of other, you know, environmental pollutants. Uh, All those things matter. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And we need to think about it. Even the clothing that we are wearing is shedding. Fibers are contributing to the microplastics problem in our ocean and, and in every fresh water. And that literally in the cup of coffee that you have, in the honey that you may put in your tea, uh, in the salt that you use on your dinner, we have microplastics. So Jeez. that pathway, which sounds crazy, right, of the places that I've worked of places in the midst of change allowed me to have this holistic view of how to try to solve these big wicked problems. Man, that's a really incredible explanation. Um, so I want to I want to ask a question as a person who thinks about uh, trying to combat extinction across the globe, but I want to think about it in terms of how it's going to pertain to us as humans humans becoming extinct. So. I'm just kind of curious to know what your perspective is or what your opinion is in terms of the thing that you think could potentially cause the human race to go extinct. What what could it be? What is something that we as humans uh, should consider? Well, it's really 
scary that you know we are in we are in what's called the sixth mass extinction where you know we've had five great mass extinctions on our planet this is the sixth it is equal in size to some of the other mass extinctions where we lost you know 90 something percent of the species in the ocean a lesser percent of the species on land for instance is perhaps the greatest mass extinction event that we had. Mm -hmm. Uh, But we are setting up the conditions that are really similar to those previous mass extinctions, right? We see it in Washington, D.C., which has had the rainiest years that it's ever had and the hottest years that's ever had. We see this happening in the Arctic where the Arctic ice sheets are at the smallest extent that we've ever seen, that Greenland Mm -hmm. is melting it unbelievable rates that Australia, you know, is drying up, that the Pacific Northwest Olympic National Forest, which is a temperate rainforest, is literally drying up. We're seeing changes in the jet stream. You know, we're seeing entire ecological communities completely reorganizing Mm -hmm. and moving the movement of diseases Mm -hmm. into new places, that these changes fundamentally are setting into place the same factors and the same gases and the same things that happened at these previous mass extinction events. But instead of being created by volcanoes and and asteroids, they're being created by a single species. And that is extraordinary to me, right? It is literally us bringing by the basis of our own extinction and the extinction of many of, of the species that we appreciate as humans, you know, Cockroaches will do great, <laughs> you know, awesome. Like I love them. We're gonna we're gonna have no shortage of them. Uh, but like that's not a world I want to live in. That is absent of snow leopards or or absent of lemurs. Those are beautiful things. But there are also the canaries in the coal mine mm-hmm. that give us indicators of how those species are. So people remember long ago we used to have battles over the spotted owl in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. Spot owl is a perfectly fine bird, but the reason we picked it, the environmental community picked it, was it had these enormous home ranges, uh-huh. and it was highly sensitive to environmental perturbation. So if the spotted owl was doing well, that ecosystem and everything in it would do well. It was a proxy, right? If the spotted owl was doing poorly, then we knew actually that the rest of the, the ecosystem was doing poorly. Oh, so we're on the sixth mass extinctions, what you're saying, all the factors are lining up such that this may happen. And we it is the, happening. It we, is happening. We already are at extinction rates are a thousand times above what are called background extinction rates or okay. normal extinction rates. Okay. Uh, so extinction is a normal process, but it's at the rate of one to two species a year. But this is there's one other element of it is that we may actually be way underestimating it. And this is where I'm getting super depressing, which I promised you guys I would. That is my job description. Understood. But it, it Understood. is, it is uh, most of the animals we have studied mm-hmm. to this date, mm-hmm. right, are animals that are kind of big and shiny and they live across multiple habitats and they eat a lot of things. Well, those characteristics of the animals that are data set on extinction is based on, which we know is a thousand times that of background extinction rates, those characteristics are the very characteristics that make you more resistant to extinction. Mm. So most of the animals that we don't know very much about, which is 95% of the animals have never been really assessed for extinction, are animals that are small or that are specialized in a very unique habitat or food type or live in a very narrow area that might soon disappear because of climate change or environmental degradation or environmental pollutants. And those species, which we don't even know about, may already be gone. One example is Madagascar, which is we got lemurs, right? Lemurs are primates. They're not monkeys, really important. They're not apes. They're a totally different type, lemuriforms, of primates. They're unique to Madagascar. We have some close relatives in Africa Loris, and Asia, lorises and tarsiers. Sure. Um, but when I left Madagascar in 2003, there were, or 2001, there were 45 known species of lemurs, the largest being three feet tall. There used to be gorilla-sized lemurs mm-hmm. in Madagascar, 15 species of which, of these larger lemurs we've hunted to extinction. Mm-hmm. Historically, when humans came on board, you know, somewhere between 2,000 and 1,600 years ago. We now have over 105 species of lemurs that we know about. So in this 
intervening 20 years, we've doubled the number of vertebrate primates on a single island the size of California, of which 90% of the forest has been cut. So on that remaining 10% of the forest, we were somehow missing that there were all these primates running around that forest. So if we don't even know that, right? Yeah. The Madagascar forest yeah. gave us the cure for childhood leukemia, yeah. right? It gave us what else have we lost that we never knew about. And that's why I think our estimates of what is going on is unclear. Also, most of our national parks are islands. Right. And we know islands are kind of the hot spots of extinction. Yep. And increasingly, uh, a lot of species may be walking dead and we just don't fundamentally no know it. And this is why, like... It is not about small little actions we can take. It's not even about building national parks, which is important. It is about fundamentally creating different pathways for industrialization, replacing products that are driving species extinct, thinking about the great, you know, the sustainability of what we're doing, uh, and using market forces to drive them forward because we can't just expect people to take these actions, right? Yeah. yeah. Around what we're trying to do. Uh, Alex, that's wonderful. I think that's uh, that perspective is deeply important and it's something that we need to hear often. For this reason, I've, I've essentially engaged in a conversation with you because I think you've had a lot to offer in terms of not only the work that you've done with the Snow Leopard Project, uh, the national park that you've created or helped create in a place like Afghanistan, or tell the stories of places that you've been to Madagascar, Iraq, Afghanistan, and Russia in terms of their transformational change in your role in understanding these places. So I appreciate your time. And so what I want to do is just to be respectful about your time. We're about to, we're about to fill up an hour here. Uh, I want to thank you for writing this book because I think the snow leopard is an incredible animal. I want to thank you for your perspective, but I also want to go into uh, what I like to call uh, rapid fire questions. If you kind of, if you kind of sure. want to go into that with me. Okay. So what I'd like to do is ask you questions, just kind of share what first comes to your mind. Okay. Okay, here we go. What would you like your last meal to be? Gormasebsi, which is a Persian herb stew, and that title does not describe the incredibleness of it. Mm-hmm. Lovely. Uh, what would you tell your 20-year-old self? To be more patient. Yeah, especially in this day and age. And then yeah. This is often quite important. I, I wonder how many people think about this, but I'm going to ask is, um, what do you wish you knew about your parents that you don't already know? I would have loved to have seen them when they were younger and just had a chance to meet them when they were in their 20s. Because yeah. I think they're pretty, they were both pretty extraordinary people and extraordinary parents for me. But I love to just, this. I hear so many stories about my father when he was younger. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he is someone I want to emulate. So understanding that would have been, it would have been incredible. Yeah. I learned to fall in love with my parents when I went, went back to Afghanistan and heard the stories of who they were before. I was born. I didn't know that because I never heard stories about my parents until I went back to Afghanistan because I didn't grow up amongst family. Yeah. So I didn't get to hear stories of my parents until I went back as a full-blown adult when I was 28. I think this is something we're missing in at least American society is that the close family connections that I think is so powerful for raising children, for raising a family, for being embedded within a society. And it makes me think about places like Iran, Iraq, and Afghanistan have gone through these huge travails and what it means for those people to be ripped out of those social systems. And that's something I spent a lot of time thinking about. Yeah, good. Okay, another question. If you had uh, one superpower, what would it be? Oh, that's a good one. Uh, I would love to go back in time just because both forward and backwards, actually forward and backwards, because I want to see the trajectories we're on and I want to see the wildlife that I haven't had a chance to see that have already been wiped out on this planet. Okay, great. Since we're talking about going back and going into time, uh, what time period would you like to spend one day in and why? Uh, The Cretaceous, because we've got, if you're looking at a time when we've got all the big dinosaurs, the incredible wildlife that was on the planet at that mm. time, that would be an incredible thing to be able to see. Yeah. Uh, I would probably be eaten up within the first hour, but hey, it'd be awesome. <laughs> okay, wonderful. And then last question, sir. Um, what is your message for the world? I think the message is uh, be compassionate for people who, in particular, as I think about 
refugees. I think about people who are caught in these war zones, the incredible generosity I've experienced about those people. Um, we have so much to give. Our societies, particularly in the West, have so much to give. Um, we should be more generous and compassionate and considerate of everyone um, and the challenges that every person is going through. That's the message. Alex, thank you for your time, sir. Appreciate it. Everybody check out his book, The Snow Leopard Project. Okay. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Thank you. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a review. You can also email me with feedback at storiesoftransformationpodcast at gmail.com. You can also join the conversation and find others like you by following us on Instagram at stories underscore of underscore transformation and on Facebook, Stories Transformation. You can find all this information on my website as well, www.baktashahadi.com. That's B-A-K-T-A-S-H-A-H-A-D-I.com.